I'm delighted that you're here and we have a good number present considering the circumstances of all who have to be out. We're delighted that you're here and particularly those who are visiting with us, we're glad that you've come. I encourage you to get a Bible and let's turn to the book of James. You might put a marker there at chapter 5 because we're going to spend our time in James chapter 5 beginning at verse 13. James chapter 5 beginning at verse 13. The text says here in verse 13, if, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with all in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up, and if any have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained on earth, rained not on the earth by a space of three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. I want to call attention to two concepts found in this text that are related, obviously, one to another. The first is any among you afflicted? We'll define that in a few moments. Is any among you afflicted? And if there is, then the text says that they should pray. But I want you to notice in these six verses, seven times he mentions prayer. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Verse 14, if you're sick, call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. Verse 16, pray one for another and the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Then an example of praying, Elijah prayed that it might not rain, and he prayed again that it might rain. Seven times he mentions prayer. So this context must be dealing with those who are afflicted. Also, it must be dealing with prayer. So let's talk about praying for the afflicted. Would you consider yourself one of those who are afflicted? Would you fit into this context? Well, we'll answer that as we go along. Be pondering that question for a moment. Are you one that is afflicted? And if so, prayer needs to be offered for those who are afflicted. Now that might be me, it might be you. It might be every single one of us. Now let's talk a little about the context. The context of our text here in verses 13 to, 15, 13 to 18, the context deals with suffering persecution. That's not the only thing there, but that is obviously found in the context. Let's go back to chapter 1. The book of James chapter 1 starts on the notes of trials and temptations. And he said at chapter 1 that we should count it great joy that you fall into various trials. Now not because you're suffering trials, but because of the benefit that comes from that. And we'll say more about that a little bit later. Then he talks about learning to accept the, the circumstance that we're in. Going through trials may mean we go from being rich to poor, or it may mean that we go from poor to being rich in some occasions. Great drastic changes take place. Learn to accept the circumstance. 
Also understand in chapter 1 that our trials do not come from God. God may allow that. God does not cause that. So temptations and trials are in chapter 1. Now let's jump on over to chapter 5, closer to our text. In verses 1 to 6, the oppressors are condemned. It seems to be those that are rich who have made a mockery of those who are Christians. And so those who are rich, how for your miseries are coming upon you. Directing that to Christians, he's directing that to the oppressors of those who are Christians. Now beginning at verse 7 through verse 12, his urging is to be patient during this suffering. Remember how that the, the prophets suffered and they were patient, verse 10. Verse 11 reminds us of the patience of Job, that is the endurance of Job. So in the context, there's trials and temptations, oppressors are condemned, be patient during this suffering, and then he starts on the note, is any afflicted among you, let him pray. Is any cheerful, let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. I want you to notice there's a series of three questions in our text. And notice what these three questions are in our text. He said, is any among you afflicted? Second question, is any merry? Third question, is any sick among you? The first two are, are given a curt response of simply saying, if you are afflicted, pray. If you are cheerful, then sing psalms. But then the third seems to be where James is directing his reader. Is any sick among you? And more is said about that than he is saying about the first two questions. The New King James, which I use, uses the word suffering here. But the word afflicted maybe gives a stronger connotation of that. Is any suffering? Let him pray, the text says. So let's talk about praying for the afflicted. Let's start with this. Four things we want to consider. Let's start with the afflicted. Who is that? What is that? Does that fit you? Does that fit me? What's the meaning of the afflicted here? Is any among you suffering? Is any among you afflicted? And so you're saying, well, I don't know if I'm in that category or not because I don't know what this means. What is the afflicted? This comes from a word. It's a compound word which means uh, kekos and pathos, kekos, has to do with evil and pathos is suffering. So it has to do with suffering evil. Here's how that word is translated. That same word is translated endure hardships, talking about a servant of the Lord. Paul himself had endured hardships. So it's the idea of enduring hardships. It's also translated suffer trouble in 2 Timothy 2 and in verse 9. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, endure afflictions. It is translated suffering in our New King James and afflictions in the King James translation. It's a general concept of term. BDAC says it means to suffer misfortune, to bear hardships. Some misfortune you're suffering. If there's some hardship you're going through, then you fit the afflicted here in our context. Strong says it means to undergo hardships, to be afflicted, to endure afflictions, to suffer trouble. Nolinsky makes an interesting connection here from verse 12. Go back to verse 12. He said, But of all brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Now it's in this context of suffering. In verses 1 to 12, and then is any afflicted among you, he mentions something about swearing. 
And why does he mention swearing? Well, you're apt to make rash promises and swear when you are threatened as you would be under persecution. As you would when you are afflicted. As you would when you are suffering hardships. Linsky makes a connection to verse 12 saying, in contrast to swearing when you're under pressure, making rash oaths when you're under pressure, if there is some sort of trouble you have, spend time praying rather than swearing. What a contrast. Linsky is right. This would deal with any suffering, any sickness. It's a general concept. Woods makes this observation. It is therefore sufficiently comprehensive to embrace every type of affliction, whether of outward bodily character or of inward mental anguish. You may be suffering something of outward body character or inner mental anguish would fit this concept of being afflicted. Now we'll look more about the context in a moment. Well, the king says in his work on James, it has the potential to describe virtually any sort of suffering or hardship, rather from sickness, bereavement, persecution, loss of health, or even of property. So one on the one hand may be their health and they are afflicted. Another one may be persecuted and they are afflicted. And another one may be bereaved and they are afflicted. They fit the concept of this text. Now I know the meaning. Let's talk per the context, the ways one may be afflicted. What does the context tell me about ways in which one may be afflicted? Well, obviously, verses 1 to 12, we've already considered, if we've been making a cursory reading through the book of James, verses 1 to 12 is telling me persecution would be one of the ways in which that's true, where you might have an oppressor who is putting pressure upon you and ridiculing you and causing problems because of your faith, not in spite of your faith, but because of your faith. So it may be that because of your stand for the cause of the Lord, you're suffering some hardship. Many of you have suffered that kind of thing. But there's another thing mentioned in the context, and that is physical sickness. So let's go to our text at verse 14 and 15. Is any among you sick? Is any among you sick? The word sick here comes from a word that simply means to be sick, or to be ill, or to be disabled, Lord and Nida say. They're exocographers. So it means to be sick or to be ill or to be disabled. Now there's another term sick that gives another connotation we'll notice in a moment. It is altogether possible, and we'll develop this more later, that there is some connection with sin here. You say, why would you say that? Because in the next verse, he mentions this sickness and being saved from this sickness, and then in the context he mentions salvation from sin. There may be some connection. What that connection is will develop a little bit later. But when we come to verse 15 now, is any sick among you? Verse 14, let him call for the elders of the church, let him pray over him, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. This is a different word. This is an entirely different word than we noticed in verse 14. This word kemno simply means to be weary or fatigued. The Young's literal translates it distressed. Now get the picture. Is any among you physically sick, ill, verse 14? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him anoint them with oil and pray over them. And then the prayer of faith will save the sick. Different word. Those who not only are physically sick, but they're fatigued and they're distressed. More about that in a moment. But I'm listing ways in which we may be 
persecuted, physically sick. These are per the context. And now spiritually sick. Verses 15b through 16. Go to verse 15b. Notice at verse 15b he said, And if he has committed sins, he shall be forgiven. That's spiritual sickness. So that we may be afflicted with spiritual sickness. You may have the guilt of sin weighing up on you. You may have a guilty conscience bothering you because of sin. Verse 14, and by the way, before we go to verse 16, this sickness here, being weary and fatigued and distressed, may be connected with this. Again, more about that in a moment. But look at verse 16. Confess your trespasses to one another. That's spiritual sickness. And pray one for another. You're praying for this healment of the spiritual sickness at verse 16. We're going to lace all of that together as we're throwing all the pieces of the puzzle out on the table at this moment. All we're doing is seeing what it means to be afflicted with meaning and ways in which one might be afflicted. So I know the meaning and know the ways. Let's talk about the opposite of being afflicted. Go back to verse 13. Is any afflicted among you? Well, then pray. Is any cheerful, the new King James says, or Mary, the King James says, let him sing songs just the opposite and what I'm learning from that is any sick well some will be sick is is any cheerful some will be cheerful but here's what I'm learning from that not all Christians will go through the same thing or at the same time you see one may be enduring this sickness and another one may be going through distress and another one may be cheerful the one who's cheerful go through the sickness and the distress later, but maybe not at the same time that another is going through the distress or the sickness. So at the very moment where I'm cheerful and I'm excited because things are going better than they ever have in my life, someone else may be going through affliction. And I need to recognize that. And while I'm going through the affliction over here and I'm needing prayers and I'm calling for the elders of the church to come and pray over me because of this, it may be that I need to recognize that others are not enduring the same thing. They're going through affliction. And they're distressed. Not all are going through the same thing at the same time. One who suffers should pray that God would lift his burden. And when God lifts the burden, he should be cheerful. It's just the opposite. And he expresses it in praise. Is any afflicted, then let him pray. Is any cheerful? You may become cheerful after you've been afflicted. And then, he said, let him sing songs. Let him express that joy in praise to God. And I want to suggest to you that's very different from the one who says, you know what, when I get over this affliction, when I get over this sickness, I'm going to get back in church. And then he never does. I've heard that story many times as you talk to somebody who thinks they're on their deathbed and if the Lord helps me through this and the Lord gets me through this sickness and if I could just get over this and I get back on my feet, I'll tell you what, I'm going to turn my life around and I'm going to get back in church and I'm going to start living right. As soon as they get better, forget about all that. But the one in this context, you're afflicted, pray. When you're cheerful, he sings psalms. He never forgets that promise. Now I know the meaning. I know the ways. I know the opposite. Let's talk about the application. We're still developing what the afflicted are. You see, if you are afflicted or you're suffering some hardship, you're going through some hardship, then you need prayer. And thus we talk about praying for the afflicted. You may not at this moment be going through that, but at some point in your life you'll go through some kind of hardship, some kind of affliction, 
some kind of distress and you're in need of prayer. Now what I'm learning from that is the whole context, listen to this carefully, the whole context of James chapter 5, 13 to 18 is giving an emphasis on the power of prayer. Now there may be in the place, and there is a place for medical attention when there's physical sickness. There is a time and there is a place for quality counsel where you need counseling through your, your struggles and, and your, your problems. You need that sometimes. None of that's minimized in this text, but the point of this context and the emphasis is on the power of prayer. Not saying you don't ever need to cancel. It doesn't mean you never seek medical attention, but what it is saying, here is the emphasis of the power of prayer in this context. Seven times in six verses he mentions prayer and its power and its influence in those who are praying. Now I know this. I know about the afflicted. I know what it means. I know the ways we could be. I know the opposite is being cheerful, and I know the application to me that I need prayer. Now let's talk about, secondly, now that I know about the afflicted, the people praying. We're talking about praying for the afflicted. Who is to pray for the afflicted? Well, the context reveals three different categories of people in the verses we just read. First of all, we pray for ourselves. Go back to verse 13. Is any afflicted among you? Let him pray. Are you afflicted? Then pray. Not as a last resort. But as a first response, what do we pray about? Let's go back to chapter 1 of the book of James. Pray for wisdom to cope with the suffering. Pray for wisdom to see that, that while I endure some of this suffering, whether it may be sickness, distress, whether it's persecution, there may be some value from this. Go back to James chapter 1 with me, if you will. Notice in James chapter 1. Do you remember he said, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience? That's why at verse 2, look at verse 2. He said, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why, why do I count it joyful? Because I know that the testing of my faith produces patience, that is endurance. The more I go through, the stronger I am to go through even more. So I go through this trial and I'm stronger now to go through the next trial. And I've gone through several trials. I'm stronger now than I've ever been. There's value in suffering. Now, watch this. Watch this. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom about what? Wisdom to see the good in the suffering at the moment. You see, while I'm suffering, I don't see any good in that. Well, I'm being ridiculed for my faith. I don't see any good in that. Well, I am suffering some hardship. Maybe there's been financial reversal, and I don't see any good in that. But there is good and benefit that can come from that. So one of the things I pray for myself in the midst of this affliction is help me to have the wisdom to cope. Let's stay in chapter 1. Look at beginning at verse 9. Pray for strength to accept the circumstance. See, James 1, verse 9, we talked about this earlier. The lowly brother glory in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. That is, if one has been exalted and he's been become humiliated, let, let him rejoice in that. And the one who was lowly, he's exalted now. These sudden changes should not shake or bother his faith. Would it yours? What I mean by that, what if suddenly whatever financial gain you have, you lost every bit of that, would that shake your faith? Some people it would. They throw up their faith. They just give up on that. 
Or would it if you are bound in your luck and suddenly you came into mega wealth, would that shake your faith and change your outlook on life of spirituality? In some cases, it does. So the point of James 1, 9 through 11 is pray for strength to accept the circumstances, whatever changes come in your life, that I can deal with the sudden changes, the reversals in life, things that are totally different, that it doesn't change and shake my faith. Is any afflicted? Let him pray. Pray for wisdom to cope. Pray for strength to accept the circumstances and pray for patience to endure. Remember the patience of Job? Job never really understood what was going on in his life, but he endured. He never gave up. He never quit. He never faltered. And so pray for patience to endure. Now, who else needs to be praying? We're talking about the people praying, the elders. They're mentioned at verse 14 and 15. This is the most difficult section for me in the book of James and one of the more difficult sections of the Bible for me. James is thought to be quite a simple book and it is a simple book. But there's some sections that are quite difficult for me and this is one of them, verses 14 and 15. So let's read James chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. What on earth is the use of the oil in this context? Well, oil at times was used for medicinal purposes. Could be, and it was in some occasions. Going back to Isaiah 1 and verse 6, there would be the anointment for the wounds. So oil would be used for that. Do you remember in the story of the um, Good Samaritan that the Samaritan took the man and poured oil in his wounds, the text says. And so all was used for medicinal purposes in Luke 10. So sometimes it's used for that. There are other times when it was used in connection with miracles. Now this is the only time that I know this, this phrase is used in the Gospels. So let's, uh, or this concept is used. Go over to Mark 6. We often talk about the miracles of Jesus and the miracles of the apostles and uh, the power of and we understand that when the apostles worked miracles or Jesus worked miracles, they could lay hands on someone or just speak and it's accomplished. They didn't need any external tools for that. But there were times when the Lord would use some external tool and there was no power in the tool. For example, before we go to Mark 6, do you remember Jesus healing the man of his blindness and, and he spit on the ground and, and, and then put basically mud in the man's eyes? That had no power at all. In other words, the power wasn't in the dirt, it wasn't in the spit, it wasn't in the mud, it wasn't in any of that, but the power is in Christ, but he uses that to emphasize the miracle that is being performed. Let's go to Mark 6. Talking about the apostles of the twelve that went out, they cast out many demons and anointed them with all, uh, and anointed with all many who were sick and healed them. Now that's miraculous. And so there were times when oil was used in connection with miracles. Now, why would the oil be used? Not because there's power in the oil. Because someone who didn't have the power to work miracles could grab the same oil and take it and anoint whoever they wanted, and nothing could be accomplished in that. There's no power in the oil. To give an illustration of that or to verify that kind of concept, in Acts 8, they called for the apostles to lay hands on so others would have the power of the Spirit. They didn't call for someone to bring more oil. Because there's power in the oil. So why would they use oil in connection with miracles? I don't know. 
but seemingly it was to draw attention because oil is used for medicinal purposes. That here is something that seems like it's impossible or would be impossible to just naturally heal and you anoint them with oil and suddenly they get better because of the power of the mirror. It draws attention to the healing powers rather than having healing powers itself. The term awe could be used symbolically here, Woods and King so argue. Let me give you some evidence of that. The elders obviously are not doctors. Call for the elders of the church. You're sick, and that's physical sickness, verse 14. Stay with me, chapter, don't, don't leave John, uh, James 5. Look at verse 13, or verse 14. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders. That's physical sickness, but call for the elders. The elders are not doctors, and yet doctors were readily available. Luke was one, Colossians 4. They needed a doctor that could call for a doctor. Elders are not doctors. Oil is not always useful when used for medicinal purposes, like Luke chapter 10, for all ailments. For example, heart failure. You don't know them with oil, and then it makes it may help the wound of a man who's injured, but it wouldn't seem to do much for heart failure, would it? And furthermore, I want to suggest to you. That the reference here, as Wayne Jackson suggests, is extremely abbreviated. Nothing is specifically stated in the context as to the design of the practice. This is the only reference where elders are to take oil and anoint someone. And so if this is where elders are to take oil, literal oil, and they are to anoint someone who is sick, there's nothing said about what kind of oil, what's to be used, how it's to be used, how it's to be administered. It must be symbolic. We'll say more about that in a moment. It seems to be miraculous in the days of spiritual gifts. Now let me give you some evidence that it may be miraculous. There was a need to call for elders because there was something that they could do beyond what the, the self or others could do. Is any sick among you, let him call for the elders. If there's not something miraculous involved in the days of spiritual gifts, then why call for the elders? Why couldn't the person praying for themselves or other brethren pray for them, and accomplish the same thing that elders could accomplish. Secondly, the oil, again, was used in connection with miracles in Mark 6, and perhaps it's used here in connection with miraculous spiritual gifts. And notice this. This is interesting. This is one of the strongest things that, that occurs to me as we go through James chapter 5. Notice it, verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save. Here is the promise and the assurance that when you call for the elders and they anoint them with oil, seemingly symbolic, not literal oil, they will be healed. Not that they will get better, may get better, but they will be healed. Now that would be true with miraculous gifts. The one who had the gift of healing, as per 1 Corinthians chapter 12, they would get healed. Not that they're going to get a little better or may get better or they may die, we're not sure what's going to happen, but they will be healed. That argues for miraculous gifts. But Barnes argues otherwise. He said, if the allusion is to ordinary officers of the church, it is evident that the cure to be hoped for, verse 15, is not miraculous. But what's to be expected in the use of appropriate means accompanied by prayer? Well, that's an interesting point. I think Barnes perhaps is wrong about that. I want you to notice again the emphasis of the text. Let's not get away from the emphasis of the text. Because as we go through this, there's, there's going to be, as you're reading the text, raising, what's the oil about? So that's why we talk about oil. Why, why call for the elders? That's why we answer that question. 
But let's get back to the flow of the text. The emphasis of the text is on the prayer and its power. Remember the seven times in six verses, pray, pray, prayer, prayer, pray. He mentions. Regardless of the all and its use, the emphasis is on the power of prayer. Whether that's a literal all, you say, well, I think that's literal all that the elders are to take and they're literal to anoint them. All right? Still the emphasis on the power of prayer. You say, well, I think it's symbolic like you said. It is symbolic, not literal all, but it's symbolic in this context. And, and that it maybe was used with reference to miraculous... Okay, it's still the emphasis is on the power of prayer. Because notice verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. Regardless of how the healing was done or the efficacy of the healing. Was it miraculous or providential? Was it something where they may get better or they definitely get better? That's what we mean by the efficacy. How powerful was it? Regardless of is on its power of praying for those who are afflicted. Now, again, listen to Barnes. Barnes argues efficacy is not absolute, though I think it probably is. I'm just sharing with you another vantage point. He said this must be understood, as such promises are everywhere, the restriction that it will be restored to health if it shall be the will of God, if it shall be deemed best. It cannot be taken in the absolute and unconditional sense, for then, if this means were used, the sick person would always recover, and no matter how often, might be sick and would never, need never die. Well, that's overlooking the, the limitations of miraculous spiritual gifts of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But let's go further. We're still talking about the elders. Is there a connection here between physical sickness to sin? You say, why would you even raise that question? Let's look at verse 15. As if we have not read any further, we're just reading this for the first time. Is any sick among you, afflicted among you, then let him pray. If any cheerful, let him sing psalms. Is any sick, let him call for the elders of the church and pray over them, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. All right, we're talking about physical sickness. We hadn't dealt with sin yet. So let's get it, verse 15b. And if he has committed sins, uh-oh, he just mentioned sins in that context. He shall be forgiven. And then he turns and talks about confessing your sins and praying one for another. He's been talking about suffering and being cheerful in contrast, talking about sickness and distress, and then he mentions sin right in the middle of the context. Why? Why is that? Both are mentioned right here in the context. It's possible, as some have argued, that some sin may be the cause of whatever he's talking about in this context. Now, there's a misconception that we read about in the New Testament, some had in John 9 and, and the book of Job, that when one is suffering, that's God's punishment for sin somehow. That's what Job's friends thought about that, and they were wrong. John 9, who, who committed sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither one. It's a misconception. But it is possible that one could commit sin that results in some devastation to their body. For example, the drunkard destroys their liver, and now he's sick and he's in bad shape because of what he's done. Or maybe the one who is promiscuous now has disease because of their, their immorality. On down the line we could go. There are a number of cases where sin may be at the root of what caused the, the sickness. That could be what's under consideration. But it's also possible that sickness and the weariness from it may lead to sin. It may come in the reverse. How could that work? Sometimes when someone is sick 
and particularly the weariness of their sickness can cause them to forsake and forget about God in the midst of all of that. And so they sin as a result. And so there is sickness that needs to be dealt with, but there's sin also to be dealt with. But there's another point. Sin can be the cause of being weary or distressed. Now go back to 15. Remember the word distressed? It wasn't the same as the sickness. This is a weariness and a, uh, a distress. Quite often there have been those who are going through something you think they're physically sick and come to find out all the problem is that they are just extremely under stress. And what's causing the stress? It's a sin they have and the guilt weighing upon them. Maybe that's part of the context. There seems to be some connection in the context, what it is, we're not sure, but some connection between sin and the thing that they're suffering in this context. So call for the elders. We're still trying to develop the idea of the people who are praying. But here's the third category. I said there are three. Who needs to pray for the afflicted? He needs to pray for He needs to call for the elders. And in this case, they seem to have had Yes, in text. But then all righteous people, verse 16. How so? Well, elders would be included in that. Notice at verse 16. Confess your trespass to one another and pray one for another. Well, the elders would be part of that because they've been called. But more are included because he talks about praying one for another, those who heard the confession and the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. That includes far more than the elders. Avails much. We should pray for the afflicted. Who should pray? You should pray for yourself. Call for the elders and furthermore, righteous people. But let's go thirdly. Let's talk about the prayers themselves. What about the prayers themselves? I know the afflicted and the people offering those. Well, the prayers themselves should be offered in faith. Look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Not all prayers are offered in faith. They should be, but not all prayers are offered in faith. Prayer comes as a result of faith. Let's go to Luke 18. Remember Jesus spoke in Luke 18. He spoke a parable in that men ought always to pray and not to faint. That's his point. He's, he's, his point of his parable is men ought to always keep praying. Never give up on praying. Never quit praying. But notice verse 8. He ends that section by saying, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Has he shifted gears? Did he change something? No, no, he didn't change subject. He speaks a parable that men ought always to pray. And when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find men who still have enough faith in prayer that they're still praying like they should? What I'm learning from that is praying is a result of faith. Strong praying comes from strong faith. Weak praying comes from weak faith. I'm learning a connection between prayer and faith. We pray because we believe in the power of prayer. We back off from praying because we don't really have faith in the power of prayer. Do you have faith in the power of prayer? Do you realize how powerful it is? Chapter 1 and verse 6 says we should pray and ask without doubting. We should not be doubting as we pray. In other words, you don't ask, God, I, I'm suffering from sickness. May that get better. May I have the wisdom to cope. And then with the same thought process, you think, I'll never understand what this is all about. I'll never see any good come from this. You're asking doubting. 
What else about these prayers? It should be offered fervently and earnestly, verses 16 and 17. Notice verse 16. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. What does the word fervent mean? BDAG says it means to put one's capabilities into operation, to work, to be at work. You say, I didn't get much out of that. Well, it's translated, are at work, to work effectively. Do you see the point? To pray fervently, the word fervently is the idea of to be at work. You work at it is the idea. In other words, prayer is not just a recital of words we go through. You say, well, it's time to pray, and I've got this little recital of words. Let me find my words here, and let me just basically go through this ritual of reading these words, and now I've made my prayer to God. But you work at prayer. You work at it fervently. That's the idea of fervent prayer. You're working at it. You, as BDAG says, you put your capabilities into operation. You put energy into that. You work at it. But there's another word that's used. It's interesting here and surprising the word that's used. Look at verse 17. Talking about Elijah, he was given an ex as an example of the power of prayer. The text says he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, verse 16, verse 17 rather. He prayed earnestly. And that's the same word you look the word up and you think, well, I'm, I'm looking for something that's going to talk about energy and vitality. But it's the same word translated prayers, talking about Cornelius' prayers, and the disciples praying in prayer. What's that about? It has the idea of pleading. Pleading. That's the idea. Send, some lexicographers use the word pleading to translate that. Well, it's a different word here than the word fervent. He prayed earnestly. He prayed pleading, begging. How should prayer be offered? It should fervently put some work into it, work at it, and pray pleading. And perhaps 1 Kings chapter 18, where it talks about Elijah praying, may give us some insight. Turn over there. Do you remember, as we have uh, studied 1 Kings in the past, you may have made a marginal note at 1 Kings chapter 17, and where he prayed, but the text doesn't say he prayed, and so we make a marginal note that that the James 5 says he prayed. Well, the same thing when we come to chapter 18 now of 1 Kings. Look at verse 42. And I made a marginal note that he doesn't use the word prayer here, but it says he prayed. What did he do at verse 42? That Elijah went up to Mount Carmel and he bowed down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Gives the idea of pleading, fervent, earnest. That's the kind of prayer that avails context. And it comes from a righteous heart. We're talking about the prayers that are offered. It comes from a righteous heart. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So here's what I'm learning from that. Right living is a condition of God hearing our prayers. God turns his ear away from those who turn their ear away from hearing his law. Proverbs 28, 9. 1 Peter 3, 12. Quotation from Psalm 34. The eyes of the Lord over the righteous. And the ears are open to their prayers. 1 John chapter 3, we, we have the assurance that God hears because we are doing the things that are right. We're obedient, doing the things right in His sight. 1 John 3 and in verse 22, that becomes a motive for living right. I want to live right so my prayers would be heard. So what about the prayers for the afflicted? Well, it ought to be offered in faith, ought to be offered fervently and earnestly and from a righteous heart. But finally, let's talk about the assurance. This text gives me some assurance about prayer for the afflicted. What assurance is given in this context? 
Well, first of all, back to verse 13. The afflicted, New King James, the suffering, are cheered. In other words, one is sick, and as per verse 15, they are despondent and discouraged. They can become cheered. Is any sick among you? You might be in that category. Pray. But there's another category you want to be in. Are you cheerful? If you're not now, you want to be. And the text implies that if you are afflicted, you can become cheerful because you pray. So when the afflicted pray, their spirits are raised, their burdens are lightened, and their hope is restored. What other assurance do we have? Well, verses 14 and 15, the sick are healed. Go back to your text. If you've left that and gone over to 1 Kings or any other text, let's go back to James chapter 5. And go to verse 14 again. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. If this is miraculous, which means it would have passed with the days of spiritual gifts passing, then this immediate context cannot be duplicated. But if it's miraculous, then the sick were healed without question. The assurance is, the elders pray for them and on with all, they're going to get better. No waiting to see if it's going to get, they're going to get better. Which is what I think he's talking about. But in application today, the spiritual gifts are gone. The sick can be healed providentially. We don't have the assurance that in every case where prayer is offered that God's going to answer it in our affirmative, and we'll see more about that in just a second. But we have the assurance that the sick are healed. But here's another assurance that sins are forgiven, verse 15 and 16. If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses one toward another. So it's conditioned upon confession. Confess your trespasses one toward another, verse 16. Pray one for another that you may be healed. It's conditioned upon acknowledgement and confession. Implied is that confession is as broad as is the sin. But it's also conditioned upon prayer, verse 16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That healing must be spiritual. And now let's go to verse 16 to close, and that is, here's another assurance. What, what assurances do I have when we pray for the afflicted? The afflicted are going to be cheered, the sick are going to be healed, the sins are forgiven, for prayer avails much. Go to the end of verse 16. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The assurance is if it's coming from a righteous heart and it's a fervent prayer, it will avail much. It means it does much good. That doesn't mean that the prayer is going to accomplish what I want or what I ask. I may want God to do this, and I may ask for God to do that, and that may not happen. That's not what the text says. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have any power. It does mean that it does have power, and it does good. That's the idea of the text. Williams' translation says, instead of availing much, the righteous man is very powerful. 
It's not that you have a little bit of power, but it's very powerful. It avails much. It has force whether it hits the target or not. Haley gives this illustration in his works on prayer. You've heard it before. That you fire a gun at a target and you say, well, uh, I missed the bullseye. In fact, I missed the target altogether. So you don't say, though, that the, the bullet or the arrow, if you're uh, shooting an arrow, has no force, still has the same power, it still has the same force, it just may not have hit the target. It may have split open a tree, it may have put a hole in the ground, it may hit the bale of straw, whatever the case may be, it still has the same force and the same power. So prayer has power, but it didn't hit the target I was shooting for, but it still has power. It didn't accomplish what I hoped to accomplish in that prayer, but it still has power. It avails much. And notice the American Standard rendering of that. That it avails much in its working. In its working. When it's exercised. When we use it. Perhaps that's what James 4 was talking about, that you failed to receive because you didn't ask. We don't use it. And so it avails much in its using or in its working when it's used well that's praying for the afflicted James chapter 5 13 to 18 we see the afflicted who that is we see the people who are praying we see how the prayers are to be offered and then we have the assurance they receive because they're offering the kind of prayer that's found in that context there may be one or more present who's not a Christian who's not come this morning believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?